And as her friend and former colleague at the University of California, Santa Cruz for many years, it is my great pleasure to be personally welcoming her to address us, particularly in a moment of historical possibility, a critical turning point in this nation's history. When I think a critical perspective such as hers, which can see both the violent legacies of the past in our present day and the hopes for a better and different future might be needed most. We had the pleasure of hosting Professor Davis at Barnard College four years ago. This time we are delighted to bring her to the Great Hall, where she will share the stage that was once the platform for many other prominent leaders in this country, including historical figures like Abraham Lincoln, Victoria Woodhull, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, as well as more contemporary advocates for change like Wangari Mathai, Naomi Klein, and Senator Barack Obama, <laughs> who may yet become the first African-American president of the United States and may yet help to fulfill the promises of change that so many have invested in and that have brought him this far. As one of the most inspiring activists in movements for social justice and radical social transformation, and as one of the most prominent leaders in the prison abolition movement, Angela Davis's presence here tonight only adds to the distinction of this roster. Before I introduce Vivian Nixon, the executive director of the college and community fellowship who will be introducing Professor Davis, I would like to thank everyone who has helped to make this event possible. In particular, I would like to um, thank the staff of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, uh, Director Janet Jacobson, Isela Fosada, Lucy Trainer, and Hope De Dector, as well as the center's amazing student workers who are all wearing the um, center's t-shirts and which are available out there. You can also um, pick up some information um, of, about BCRW's other events um, at the table. And I'm pleased to inform you that the, the, tonight's lecture will be, pod, will be available as a podcast uh, within the week from our website, um, along with other events, past events that the center has sponsored. Um, thank you also to our generous co-sponsors, uh, the Cooper Union, the Center for the Humanities at CUNY, Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality at NYU, and the College and Community Fellowship Program at CUNY, or CCF. CCF Executive Director Vivian Nixon received the Lifting As We Climb Advocacy Award from the Correctional Association of New York in 2004. As a recipient of a Soros Justice Advocacy Fellowship awarded by the Open Society Institute in 2005, she founded Reenter Grace, a project that employs the talent of formerly incarcerated women and men to reach out to African-American faith-based communities and educate them about the dis disparate impact of United States criminal justice policies on people of color, to encourage them to help individuals resettle in the community, and to help them advocate for the elimination of systemic barriers to re-entry. Vivian Nixon is an ordained minister of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and serves on the advisory boards of the Prisoner Reentry Institute at John Jay College and the Interfaith Coalition of Advocates for Reentry and Employment and Reentry Net. The College and Community Fellowship, which she not only directs, but also of which she is an alumna, is notable in its use of higher education and leadership development as primary strategies for helping 
Formerly incarcerated women develop economic security for themselves and their families. In this way, CCF is unique among organizations aimed at helping people reclaim their lives after prison. Many programs try to address the basic needs of people returning to the community from prison, but only CCF guides them through the stages of higher education while promoting their leadership, self-advocacy, artistic expression, civic participation, and long-term economic security. May I now ask you to please welcome Vivian Nixon to the stage. Good evening. It is a tremendous honor to be here to introduce the keynote speaker for this evening, the person you're all here to see and hear. I'm not going to set the stage for what you're about to hear from Professor Davis by cataloging the brutal realities of the prison industrial complex as it exists today. Rather, I would have us think for a moment about experience, experiencing a type of double consciousness wherein we dare to imagine a world without prisons, but are also painfully conscious of both the prisons that are all around us and the people directly affected by mass incarceration. I'm fixated on this kind of duality tonight because I find myself needing and wanting to be at this very moment in two different spaces at one time. I want to be here with all of you, imagining that together we might embrace an abolition democracy that would cause prisons to be obsolete. But I also want to be uptown, celebrating freedom and accomplishment with a community of advocates and activists who know all too well the secret realities and consequences of imprisonment and who are deeply engaged in the public discourse about crime punishment and social justice. Angela Davis, because of her activism and her scholarship over the last decades, is among their champions and mine. Her work as an educator, both at the university level and in the larger public sphere, has always emphasized the, the importance of building communities of struggle for economic, racial, and gender equality. Professor Davis's teaching career has taken her to many places, including UC Berkeley and Stanford. She has spent the last 15 years at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she is professor of history of consciousness and interdisciplinary PhD program and professor of uh, feminist studies. Angela Davis is the author of eight books and has lectured throughout the United States and abroad. In recent years, a persistent theme of her work has been the range of social problems associated with incarceration and the generalized criminalization of those communities that are most affected by poverty and racial discrimination. She draws upon her own experiences in the early 70s as a person who spent 18 months in jail and on trial after being placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Her most recent books are Abolition Democracy, and are prisons obsolete? 
Angela Davis is associated with several community-based organizations that address issues concerning women who live in the conditions of poverty and women in prison. And like many other educators, Professor Davis is especially concerned with the tendency to devote more resources and attention to the prison system than to educational institutions. Having helped to popularize the notion of a prison industrial complex, she now urges us to think seriously about the possibility of a world without prisons and to help forge a 21st century abolitionist movement. As I now introduce Angela Davis, I would ask you to think of the millions of people who join us in spirit as we imagine an abolition democracy, even as they face daily the reality of prison walls, both inside and outside of penal institutions. Angela Davis. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. There aren't very many people out there. I think I heard one or two people respond. Good evening. <laughs> Thank you. First of all, it's really wonderful to be here in New York at this time. And I would like to thank Vivian Nixon for the wonderful introduction. Um, and I'd like to thank uh, the Barnard Center for Research on Women and all of the co-sponsors uh, mentioned by um, my friend and colleague Nefertiti Tadiar. Uh, I'd also like to thank the signers, uh, and I think we should uh, uh, give them a hand. <laughs> When I accepted the invitation to give this talk some time ago, it really did not occur to me that only a few days would be left before the presidential election. The campaign has been going on for so many months, so many years, that I think Obama announced his candidacy in January of um, 2007 that it was almost as if the campaign would have no conclusion. But here we are in the last days. And so much has happened uh, over the last weeks, the last month. Uh, uh, so much has happened during what is certainly the most interesting election of my lifetime. And I mean, for example, um, I, I didn't expect the financial crisis. Uh, I didn't expect that it, it, it would reach such a climax and that suddenly there would be serious discussion about the end of the non-regulated capitalist market associated with neoliberalism, global capitalism, and the Bush administration. 
it seems that we are witnessing something like the implosion of uh, global capitalism as it has taken shape uh, uh, over the last decades. And this has uh, a profound effect on the uh, prison industrial complex, given that prisons are literally marketed on, uh, the, uh, within a global context. But let me go back to that uh, discussion about the implosion of uh, capitalism. Who could have predicted that we would witness the partial nationalization of the banking industry? <laughs> and you see, McCain talks about socialism. Uh, he's not directing his uh, critiques in the right direction, I think. Uh, I mean, although it has been apparent for a very long time that democratic rights and liberties, the rights of the citizen tend to pale when it is a question of safeguarding the future of the capitalist market, or rather perhaps we can say that the market itself is the paradigm for democratic rights and liberties as they are formulated uh, in this country. Even though I have known this for a long time, I'm still shocked by the lack of serious discussion about the current uh, financial crisis. And I suppose I can say that I'm shocked about the willingness to consider this catastrophic economic situation as, um, as not really affecting poor people working class people, working class women and men. And, and I say that as I stand here on the stage of uh, this historic uh, uh, venue, Cooper Union, where uh, not only Abraham Lincoln and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Victoria Woodhull, uh, but, but uh, many champions of the working class, uh, of the labor movement have stood here uh, calling for um, class struggle, I suppose we might say. I mean, I mention this because there's been a great deal of discussion during the election about classes, but we've heard primarily about the middle class, right? Uh, and maybe about Joe the plumber, who's <laughs> like a non-union plumber, right? <laughs> Who's concerned about buying a business and about the amount of money he may make once he buys this business? But uh, uh, I was actually uh, uh, really happy to see on television. I guess it was a couple of weeks ago um, uh, a shot of uh, plumbers for Obama. Did, did any of you see that? These were union plumbers. And they were also donating their services to help people in, in a poor community. So, you know, I, I, I think we need to, re, we need to inject um, labor back into uh, this campaign. Now, when the mortgage crisis emerged, many people lost their homes. There was no major voice then 
saying that we must save working class homeowners from the avaricious policies of the big banks. Uh, uh, but of course, when the banks fell as a result of making these loans, immediately, well, almost immediately, they had some you know, difficulty getting the package together, but they did come up with $750 billion to save the banks. But let me move on to talk about the current election as representing, some people think, uh, the final victory of the civil rights movement. So let's talk about civil rights. But actually, before I present to you a critique of the civil rights paradigm, um, which is a very much related to uh, what we might call 21st century abolition democracy, um, I do want to say a few words about Barack Obama. Um, and I want to talk about the question of race, uh, which has been very strangely absent uh, from the uh, uh, discourse of the election. And, and I, would, I would begin by saying that the work that race does, the work that it has done historically, and the very central place it occupies in the collective psyche of this country is very complex and has many dimensions. Uh, but I would say that in all of this, the historical dimension is, is most central. We live in a country whose population has acquired the habit of, of not taking historical memory seriously. Um, and therefore, we tend to assume that something that happened 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 100 years ago, is a part of a history that remains securely in the past. But histories never leave us for another inaccessible place. They are always a part of us. These histories inhabit us. And we inhabit them even when we are not aware of our relationship to history. I say this in order to draw attention to Barack Obama's speech on race, which was delivered on um, interestingly enough, on March 8th, uh, 2008. I say interestingly enough because March 8th, of course, uh, is uh, the day we um, uh, celebrate the, the struggles of women, particularly the struggles of working class women all over the world. If you recall, and most of you saw the speech or else you saw, um, saw it on YouTube, right? <laughs> right? Okay. Um, and it was called a more perfect union. And if you recall, and see, this is still, this is history already. March seems so long ago. If you recall, the speech was occasioned by the controversy generated by Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Um, <laughs> by a sermon that was discovered by ABC News 
after they scan dozens and dozens and dozens of his sermons. Now, I don't want to rehearse the controversy, but I would like to quote from Obama's speech. And I would like to quote from the section where he evokes um, the historicity of race. Uh, Words on a parchment, he said, would not be enough to deliver slaves from bondage or to provide men and women of every color and creed their full rights and obligations as citizens in the U United States. What would be needed were Americans in successive generations who were willing to do their part through protest and struggles on the streets and in the courts through a civil war and civil disobedience and always at great risk to narrow the gap between the promise of our ideals and the reality of their time. He went on to say, this was one of the tasks we set forth at the beginning of this campaign to continue the long march of those who came before us, a march for a more just, more equal, more free, more caring, and more prosperous America. I chose, he said, to run for the presidency at this moment in history because I believe deeply that we cannot solve the challenges of our time unless we solve them together, unless we perfect our union by understanding that we may have different stories, but we hold common hopes that we may not look the same and we may not come from the same place, but we all want to move in the same direction toward a better future for our children and grandchildren. Now, in this speech, Obama identifies with the historical struggles against racism, which were also historical struggles against sexism. And I think that this is precisely what has generated so much excitement across generations and across racial and ethnic generation, uh, identifications in this country. I think that this identification into a history of struggle, a history of protest, is what has summoned so many millions of people to you know, join this effort to uh, imagine and create a better future for this country. Now, if we have, and certainly I hope we all have, discarded anachronistic notions of race that are grounded in these pseudo-scientific classifications of humanity that are hierarchical by their very nature, if we have discarded these notions of race, uh, and of course we're asked to be uh, colorblind, um, if we're asked to discard those particular notions of race, we cannot discard the work that race has done to shape our histories. Now, it seemed to me that in that speech on March 8th, Obama was opening up a discussion about these histories. And when he gave that speech last spring, I was really hoping that there would be an ongoing series of serious conversations about the role that race has played in shaping our histories and through our histories, our present as well. We would have had to have talked about the logic of racism that asserts itself through social structures even when there is no individual to be called racist. 
we would have had to have talked about the tendency to conflate the generic and the individual, especially the way the generic always seems to overwhelm the individual. As a matter of fact, one possible definition of racism might be the learned capacity to ignore the individual at the expense of the generic. But then on the other hand, we often place too much emphasis on the individual. We assume that human communities are always reducible to an individual unit. But even as we, as, as we um, uh, think about the way in which a discourse might have unfolded during this current election that, have might, that might have made all of us uh, uh, more intelligent and more capable of understanding ourselves and our histories. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it did not happen. And I think that uh, that speech on race, which was such a wonderful opening, actually functioned as a closure functioned as a way to cut off discussion uh, about race. But let me, let me just say for a second, before we continue these critiques, um, I, I just want to emphasize the importance of claiming the victory of Obama's candidacy and his possible presidency. I mean, it is a victory. It's a victory for generations of people, women and men of all racial backgrounds who have fought with all of their beings for equality and justice. And so for a moment, I don't want us to, I want us to, to, to shift our attention away from Obama, the individual. And Think about the extent to which so many people over so many decades uh, have dreamed of such a moment, even though the moment may be different when it actually arrives. But I, but I, but I, think, about, I think about my mother who uh, passed away last year, who had she been able to witness this uh, uh, would have um, would have experienced this as the realization of all of her dreams. You know, I think of Fannie Lou Hamer and the fact that in 1964 she had the audacity. This woman from Mississippi who worked on a plantation as a timekeeper. This woman who led the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party delegation into the halls of the National Democratic Party convention demanding that the white supremacist delegation, Democratic delegation be unseated and that the racially uh, the racially integrated Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party be seated. Without, without Fannie Lou Hamer, there could have been no Barack Obama. <laughs> I 
And so, I mean, I can go on. I can, I can, I can evoke the memory of Viola Luiso, of Martin Luther King, of, uh, of Anne Braden. Uh, some of you may know her. <laughs> but actually, and I'm speaking to the person who just called my name. Actually, I'm more concerned that we find a way to evoke the memory of those whose names we do not know and can never know. Um, because these movements for social justice have been produced and communities of people who have, whose names may never be available to us. Uh, but they transform their lives. They transform the, 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 the lives of their communities. And in the process, they transform the lives of all of us who inhabit this country. And so I would like to ask, how can we find ways of remembering those whose names we will never know in celebrating the victory of Obama's candidacy and possible presidency. W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, when he described the end of slavery, um, Vivian Nixon uh, referred to double consciousness, which is a concept developed by Du Bois. I'm also going to direct you to his uh, description of the end of slavery in uh, the, the wonderful work, Black Reconstruction. And he tries to explain how it felt to those who had lived out their lives in bondage. What was freedom? With all of its flaws, with all of its unfulfilled promises, with all of the unfreedom that attached itself to uh, the freedom that was produced by emancipation, what was it? And Du Bois says that it was like the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. And I think that uh, many, many people, many of those people who struggled for so long, if they were with us today, they would say, this is the coming of the Lord. This is the coming of the Lord. So I want us to claim this victory. It is our victory. It is the victory of masses of people. But even as we celebrate this victory, we should be wary of the tendency to pronounce this the final victory, the ultimate triumph, the triumph of civil rights, the triumph of democracy. Now, as we know, civil rights refers to the rights of citizens. Uh, supposedly all citizens. But because the very nature of citizenship in the US has always been troubled by the refusal to grant citizenship to many groups, indigenous people, of course, but I should say that many indigenous people didn't want citizenship. They want sovereignty. Mm -hmm. 
But of course, African slaves, women of all racial economic backgrounds, we tend to think of some people as the model citizens, as the archetypical citizen, as those whose rights are never placed in question, the quintessential citizens. And we think of others as having to wage struggles for the right to be regarded as citizens. And some undocumented immigrants, for example, or suspected undocumented immigrants, along with ex-felons or suspected ex-felons, are beyond the reach of citizenship altogether. And so we live with this two-tiered notion of citizenship. The punishment of imprisonment is predicated on the assumption that people have rights and liberties that can be taken away from them. So if you think about a photographic positive and then a negative, the prison is the negative of the larger liberal democracy. Now, because of the long history of black people's campaigns for equality, the term civil rights has become a synonym for those legal measures that assure racial equality. The history of the quest for civil rights dates back to slavery. There's been a tendency, therefore, to assume that black people are the characteristic subjects of civil rights and that civil rights are affirmed through legislative and judicial processes which attempt to assure racial equality before the law. But of course we know that here in the US, black people are not the only people who have been denied full rights of citizenship. And many racialized communities have been and continue to be denied citizenship. Full rights of citizenship are denied by virtue of gender and by virtue of sexuality. And some people, unfortunately, in the, in the uh, civil rights movement uh, that uh, was situated in the late 1950s and the 1960s, uh, some people react negatively when they hear about the struggle for the civil rights of LGBT communities. Now, for example, the right to marry as a civil right. But this doesn't, this tells us nothing about the patriarchal and heterosexist nature of the institution of marriage itself. So, I mean, there are many problems that emerge from this tendency to fetishize civil rights as producing freedom and you know, one of the things that has recently occurred to me was that during the, during the, the, the movement um, in the 60s, the early 60s, that movement that we um, always called the Civil Rights Movement, and I call it the Civil Rights Movement too because everybody calls it the Civil Rights Movement, <laughs> right? But I started to remember and I said, people didn't call it the Civil Rights Movement back then, it was the Freedom Movement. It was the Freedom Movement. And of course, civil rights might have been one part of it, but the assumption was that it would address issues that transcend the very notion of civil rights as well. Now, I want to um, 
I want to uh, give you uh, an example that all of you are familiar with uh, about the uh, way in which uh, uh, we tend to um, think about race in this uh, very um, contained and uh, 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 this very contained way. We don't have a, a, a more capacious notion of the damage that, that racism does to our society. Um, and I, I want to get back to the election campaign. Because I, I think that's up front for everybody right now, isn't it? Um, and, you know, I, I'm really struck by the racially inflected anxiety that you see in the McCain Palin circle. I'm not saying that everyone responds this way, but I'm, I'm, I'm very upset about that. Um, that racially inflected anxiety, and by the discourse of citizenship that drives it. And so I want, I want us to think back, and you know, most of you, since you're here, uh, you, 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 you probably have already talked about this example, but I want to uh, um, consider it and perhaps uh, uh, look uh, for some deeper Im implications. Uh, and this is the example of that uh, woman in Minnesota um, who, who, we saw her back, the back of her head, who asked that, who who asked, who said she had a question to ask. Of, uh, I mean, she didn't really have a question. Uh, and but she was incoherent. And she was inarticulate. Uh, so she said, and I'll I'll read this again, and you've probably heard it. I can't trust Obama. I have read about him. I wonder if she really has had read about him. <laughs> and he's not, he's not, uh, and then she blurted out, he's an Arab. <laughs> now, now, that was bad enough. <laughs> I mean, there, there, it was this, this, this kind of explosion of racism. And what does McCain do? He takes the microphone from her very quickly. Um, he starts to shake his head, and he says, no, ma'am. He's a decent family man. And citizen. And he continues to say that I just happen to have disagreements with on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. Now, why didn't it occur to McCain to say, no, Obama is not an Arab, but there would be nothing wrong with an Arab running for the presidency? I mean, that could have been very, very easily said. And so, you know, I'm thinking about the logic of racism there. And, and, and if you consider that the woman's rather incoherent remark, she could have easily substituted a whole range. She could have easily said, he's a Negro. And I think back to Fanon's, you know, look, a Negro. Uh, she could have said, he's a Jew, right? 
And the point is this. In his response, McCain implied that had he really been an Arab, he could not have been characterized as a decent family man. He could not have been characterized as a citizen. And embedded in that response was the notion that Arabs are excluded from US citizenship. And also embedded in that response were discourses of heterosexism. Now, that citizenship it's, is itself is racialized and sexualized is something that we perhaps understand. It would have been a further interesting to consider how the word decent has come to stand in for the differentiation of those who would otherwise be associated with criminalized communities. So therefore, while poor black communities are still systematically criminalized, there are those who have risen above race and are therefore decent. But I will say that uh, as, as much as I am critical of McCain, I'm extremely concerned that Obama did not find a way to challenge the anti-Arab racism and the implicit Isla Islamophobia there. And you see, uh, we, we, we have this, this happening without, it took, it took days or perhaps a, a week or 10 days before there was any media discussion about what had happened. We all saw it. And we all, I assume, uh, understood what was going on. But there isn't a public language that allows us to discuss the persistence of racism in this way. And when McCain hears Repub Representative John Lewis describing some of the comments uh, that McCain supporters make uh, as reminding him of the atmosphere of hate in the segregationist South four decades ago, uh, he, he, um, he just cannot deal with that. Uh, now, 2008, um, 40 years after what is considered to be the pivotal year of um, 1968. Uh, and during this election campaign, during this interminable election campaign, <laughs> there's been a lot of discussion about the progress that is in occurring 40 years later. And uh, you know that um, Robert Kennedy has been evoked. Uh, his assassination in uh, 1968. And we have heard that he predicted in 1968 that a black person would run for president in 2008, and that this would mark the ultimate victory of the civil rights movement. Now, of course, the decade of the 60s is etched into our historical memory as the civil rights era. This period is what is called the 
post-civil rights, post-civil rights era, uh, especially in relation to the current election, which is touted as the ultimate realization of the goals of the civil rights era. Now let's get back to civil rights. Civil rights are those rights of democratic citizenship guaranteed by law. And thus, the struggle for civil rights has been a series of historical encounters with the state, the progress of which has been measured by new laws. There have been so many civil rights acts, so many civil rights acts. 1866, 1871, 1875, 1964, 1968, for some, civil rights are linked to the status quo. For others, they have been linked to radical and even revolutionary challenges to the status quo. However, however, I want us to think about these two different frameworks, because we do not often think about these two separate contextual frameworks, the rights of some people as being embedded in existing social, economic, and political conditions, and the rights of other groups as requiring militant challenges to those conditions. The failure to consider this, uh, uh, the, 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 these contradictions, these clashes, often leads us to assume that history doesn't matter at all. We speak of civil life and the rights of citizenship. One way of acquiring a different perspective on citizenship as it has, unfolded, as it has unfolded in the US and has influenced the trajectories of liberal and neoliberal democracy in many other parts of the country as well, is to look at the basis for the denial of citizenship, what has been considered the negation of citizenship. And of course, the regimes of racial segregation that were challenged by the black movement of the 50s and 60s constitute only one instance of this negation of citizenship. Institution of slavery relegated millions of people to what um, Orlando Patterson, following Claude Meyasu, called social death. Social death, natal alienation, the status of not being born. So social death obviously meant civil death. Slaves had no legal personality. They were not recognized as legal subjects. They had no citizenship right. And white women, we've evoked um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, for example, often compared their predicament to that of slaves uh, during the 19th century women's rights movement. Uh, and, um, they challenged the fact that married women were also relegated to a partial civil death. Uh, this is what I mean about the critique of marriage, right? Uh, the symbolism and the loss of one's name was that of partial civil death. 
Now, Native Americans were entirely excluded from citizenship. And as I said before, not that they wanted to be citizens, but at the same time, their sovereignty wasn't acknowledged. And this, sovereign, this struggle for sovereignty continues. But I want to bring to your attention a very interesting paradox that characterized the slave's relationship to the law. And this remains an essential element of the law's historical memory. And I think it's important for us to recognize that historical memory doesn't necessarily attach itself to individuals, uh, that institutions have memories. Uh, if you look at the extent to which uh, the institution of the prison carries with it the memory of slavery uh, and, 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 and the, the, the damage that that does. Uh, but I, I, I want to um, um, refer to the fact that slaves were legally defined as property. Some of you may have read Cheryl Harris's article, Whiteness is Property, am I right? Have you? Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. So at least some of you. And of course, as slaves defined as property, she looks at this, um, this um, constitutive contradiction. As property, slaves possess no agency, no legal personality. But they could be found guilty of crimes. So how can property be found guilty of crime. So, so in one very important respect, they were accorded legal personality. And Saidiya Hartman, in her uh, book on um, uh, scenes of, of objection, has pointed out that uh, black people were acknowledged as individuals with legal personality only through their culpability. That is to say, there was one significant sense in which slaves could not be said to be property, because property cannot be found guilty of a crime. So what I'm trying to argue is that precisely this legal finding of culpability, which remains the core of the process through which black people as a group are granted civil rights, is a negative process in which guilt is the result of a verdict that must be grounded in the recognition of the civil rights of the individual who is found guilty. Does that make sense? Uh, so what this means is that an understanding of US democracy and an understanding of the relations of power underpinning civil rights requires us to examine the relationship between civil rights and civil death between democracy and the prison, given that today, punishment is precisely the process through which people experience civil death. Civil rights and civil death as the divestment of those rights. But civil rights must be acknowledged in the very process that leads to their divestment. This is a very strange path to full citizenship, isn't it? It is also a path from the community to the individual. And Cheryl Harris uh, uh, writes in that article I referred to um, earlier, 
in part the law's denial of the existence of racial groups is predicated not only on the rejection of the ongoing presence of the past, but is grounded in a basic tenet of liberalism that constitutional protections inhere in individuals, not groups. The philosophical view of society that is closely aligned with the anti-discrimination principle, the idea that being the idea being that equality mandates only the equal treatment of individuals under the law. Within this framework, the idea of the social group has no place. And so Harris argues that it is precisely the substitution of the individual for the group that has led to the assumption that affirmative action policies that stipulate race or gender constitute assaults on civil rights. Uh, thus, campaigns against affirmative action ally themselves with campaigns for civil rights. Uh, at least that is what uh, Ward Connolly has produced for us, right? But because of this legal substitution of the individual for the group, there is this strange conflation of the individual and the group. So that one black person's advance is considered to be a victory for the entire community. And therefore, there is this long, long line of firsts, regardless of whether they use their attainments to lift up the community. Uh, And therefore, we celebrate Barack Obama as the first serious black candidate. And it looks like he may very well be our next president. And I applaud that. But as our possible first black president, he is simply celebrated as such. And at the same time, there's little or no public discourse on some of the most important issues uh, affecting us. You know, so for example, I've, I've explored the question of race. When issues of race emerge, they produce this sense of chaos, this sense of tumbling into a black hole of history from which we will never emerge. McCain and Obama and the media treat issues of racism as if they are toxic, as if they will poison the campaign, anything other than colorblindness. And I'm trying to wind up. Uh, I always uh, end up writing too many notes. Because I, 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 you know, I wanted to, to uh, come back to the question that uh, uh, you were expecting me to talk about, the question of the prison, uh, and to you know, ask about the huge racial disparity in the prison population. You know, why is it that um, some 70% of the 2.3 million people who happen to be in the prison system, state, federal, county jail, uh, jails in Indian country, military prisons, detention centers for uh, uh, immigrants, um, the 2.3 people who, 3 million people who are in that system on any, at any given moment, and 
you should know that, that that represents a census on a given day. It's not all of the people who go through the system, say, during the course of a year. You think during the course of a year, it's something more like 13 million people when you consider the county jails and how many people you know, go in and out. Uh, uh, but the racial disparity uh, should lead us to explore the extent to which the prison system and the related law enforcement apparatus um, incorporates uh, structures of racism. I mean, you can only explain this disparity by surveillance. It's not, it has nothing to do with the fact that the people who actually are in prison are more likely to commit the particular crimes for which they are arrested. What it has to do with is the fact that they are under surveillance and people in other communities commit the same crimes. But they aren't being surveilled. Now, um, the law cannot apprehend the disparate conditions. Uh, the law does not apprehend the surveillance apparatus. It simply treats any individual as an abstract, isolated, disconnected individual who is charged with a particular crime. Civil rights are the rights of individuals, not the rights of groups. If you look at, at groups and the people more likely to be surveilled and more likely to be arrested, actually we would have to talk about um, a transgender people. Transgender people are the group most likely to be subject to surveillance and most likely to be arrested. So what about the civil rights of, of trans gender prisoners, people who are already in the uh, system, the right to be treated as equal, abstract, rights-bearing subjects. The law, the law has just begun to recognize gender, but it only recognizes gender in its binary form. And so when you consider the fact that the the prison itself is a gendering apparatus because there are only two different kinds of prisons, right? They're men's prisons and they're women's prisons. And suppose um, you, uh, are, your gender does not uh, uh, correspond to that you know, very strict determination. Uh, uh, what happens? How does the prison how does the prison classify gender? This is another question. If we look at the role of classification in the prison system, we begin to understand something about uh, the way our society uh, uh, functions. Well, I could go on. I'm, 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 I'm trying to give you... <laughs> no, because I would like to have a conversation. I'm going to try to wind down. So I think, how many more pages do I have? <laughs> Not that prisoners now have the right to vote. And I think that, that every prisoner in this country should have the right to vote. In, many, in South Africa, prison, prisoners vote. 
In many countries in Europe, prisoners vote, and certainly there is no country in the entire world that systematically disenfranchises ex-felons. And of course, as you know, it is a it 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 it, it is a state issue. So there are states with you know, Florida was the state that we uh, uh, were aware of in 2000, uh, where there was a differential of 537 votes and something like 600,000 um, uh, felons had been, former felons had been disenfranchised. But I just, I would like you to think about, you know, I was talking about the way in which we inhabit histories and histories inhabit us. Um, we are generally not aware about the whole process that led to felon disenfranchisement, uh, the historical process. Uh, many of you now are aware of the, um, of the fact that we might speak about the persistence of slavery through the prison system precisely because the 13th Amendment contains an exception, right? Most people are aware of that now. If you're not, just go back, you know, Google the 13th Amendment and read it and you'll see. Uh, but we don't, talk, we don't talk about the 14th Amendment, you know, which is the Civil Rights Amendment. And we don't talk about the exception there. There is also an exception in that amendment that allows for people to be disenfranchised who engage in, quote, rebellion or other crimes. And southern states use that exception to systematically disenfranchise uh, people who had been um, convicted, and in the aftermath of the Civil War, it was largely black people. And I'll just give you an example of the extent to which uh, uh, you know, race and racism were at the core of this process. Um, in, in Mississippi, I believe it was, for example, uh, you didn't lose your vote if you had been convicted of murder. Because that's, that's because in those days, uh, most murders were committed by white men. Seriously. But if you had engaged in miscegenation, you lost your right to vote. And these are the histories that we inhabit today. We live with these histories even if we do not understand them. And so what I would like us to um, think about is that um, this election has provided a terrain of enormous excitement and a terrain of politicization of huge numbers of people, huge numbers of young people, but people of all uh, uh, ages. But we have to be very careful because we have this tendency in this country to project our own agency onto those whom we identify as our leaders. 
We do not claim our own collective capacity. And I think it's time to rid ourselves of this Messiah complex that has plagued our struggles for social justice. And this is, this is perhaps the most important historical conjuncture of our time. And when we imagine the importance of this election, let's, let's like shift our focus from the individual, uh, Barack Obama. I mean, you know, Barack, he's, he's really smart, he's really great, he has his flaws and all of that. But that is not why he is where, where he is right now. It's not about his individual characteristics. It's about those who have been willing to stand up and say no to racism and no to sexism and no to imperialism and no to war. And we have to say no to war, no to the war in Iraq, but also no to the war in Afghanistan. And definitely not Pakistan. And we say, we say no to torture. Why has McCain been so silent on that issue for which he was supposed to have the most striking expertise? No against, no to torture. And I think we should recognize that, that radical solutions are needed, which means, you know, which means, you know, I was actually very happy to hear this discussion of socialism. Um, because I thought that whereas uh, obviously the Obama campaign would say, no, this is not about socialism, and, uh, I, you know, perhaps people out there will, will, will begin to say, well, capitalism doesn't seem to be working too well these days. Maybe we should look at socialism. We have to recognize that radical solutions are needed and the, the movement, and I certainly hope that the campaign is transformed into a movement, needs to press Obama to go further on the question of health care, for example, and to go further on the question of education. Students need subsidies. I mean, we should really have free education here. And don't confine the discussion of the economy and housing to middle class people. Say working class people and poor people need housing. And we need to dismantle the prison industrial complex. And we need to extricate ourselves from the hyper-individualism of neoliberalism. And finally, we need a real movement that continues to press Obama to bring about the major changes he promised and changes beyond those he has promised, changes more radical than those he promised. Thank you very much.
Okay, I think we're going to have some uh, questions now, but the microphone's not working. Oh, now it is. Oh, good. We have, we have a little time for questions. Um, there, we have students that are going around with microphones, and I would like to take clusters of uh, three or four questions um, since we don't have a lot of time. So if you please raise your hand, a microphone will uh, come to you. Hello, Angela. Right here. Thank you for coming. I have the honor of almost having been arrested because I had an afro in the village and they thought I was you. <laughs> you and about a thousand other black okay. women, right? Okay. All right. And just for the sake of it, I like to say Shirley Chisholm's name. But my question is about uh, the Patriot Acts. What can we, can we do to have them removed? And also, so many people are in prison. We don't even know what the Patriot Act, someone can be arrested, put in a prison. You don't know where the prison is. They don't have a lawyer, the whole thing. So what can we do about that? But thank you. Yeah, we're going to take three questions, and then I'll try to respond briefly to. Check one, two. Okay. I'm sorry. Am I interrupting? I'm sorry. So, first of all, thank you for your insight, your astute observations, very, very enlightening for me. But something I didn't hear a lot about in your discussion about Barack is the tie to economics, right? There's a blanket of economics over everything right now. So is Barack actually representing black people's achievements, or is he representing a person who has access to wealth, you know, extreme wealth? And his that kind of person's achievements. Okay. Hi, Angela. Um, I don't know if you remember right here. I interviewed you about thirty years ago. With <laughs> <laughs> you look great. Um, I remember you. <laughs> I was I was with Gladrag then. Um, anyway, uh, how? This is my question. You said they didn't talk about anything about prisons during the uh, debates. And yeah. how would you corral this wonderful energy here that you get to get Mumia a free and a fair trial? <laughs> what's, what's the best thing to do? Okay, um, just, uh, I'm going to try to respond to the, the three questions. The one on the Patriot Act, thank you so much for raising that issue. It's an indication of all of the work we will have to do to begin to undo the horrendous damage that the Bush administration has done to our country and the world. So it's going to mean um, fights on a legal front, but also um, uh, mass movements as well. So thank you for raising that issue. The second question about uh, uh, Barack uh, Obama, he actually came from a very humble background. Um, and I, um, I think that what is, um, what, what many people find attractive about him is the fact that he has experienced, if not poverty, uh, at least something close to it, 
and that he has experiences of life in other parts of the world. Uh, I mean, I didn't spend time talking about what I find, what I like about Obama, the candidate. And, you know, I should say that, uh, you know, I've never been a member of the Democratic Party. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm always like, you know, a communist or peace and freedom or a Green Party or whatever. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, so I, I, I can't see the Democratic Party providing um, the, um, uh, the, the, the path toward really radical change in this country. Because it is linked to the same corporate apparatus. Uh, perhaps uh, you know, it's not as bad as the Republican Party. It definitely is not as bad as the Republican Party. Uh, but there's only so far we are able to go and remain, I think, uh, within the context of the Democratic Party. I think we need independent parties. We need independent politics. So. But I do like Obama for the way in which he encourages us to be critical of American exceptionalism. I do like uh, the way in which he uh, encourages us to look elsewhere, not to assume that, that, that it is here in the United States of America that we're going to find the solution to every problem. And even those of us who are activists, even those of us who are radicals are often affected by uh, this notion that somehow or another we know best. Uh, so I really like that about, uh, about Obama. Now the third question, um, uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, 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 reintroducing uh, the question of prisons into our discussion, uh, and particularly political prisoners. Uh, and certainly, you know, certainly the question of capital punishment. Uh, and speaking about, you know, speaking about inhabiting histories, uh, the, the death penalty is the legacy of slavery that is most um, palpable today. Uh, we're talking about an institution that has direct ties to slavery. And that is because, historically, when the penitentiary was introduced, it was supposed to be an alternative to corporal and capital punishment. There was to be no more um, uh, pain uh, inflicted directly on the body or death as punishment. And what, what happened, I mean, there were, Benjamin Franklin was an abolitionist, uh, for example. A lot of people were opposed to the, saw the death penalty as incompatible with democracy. Uh, and what happened was that in many, in many states, uh, capital punishment uh, was severely restricted so that whereas it had been uh, applicable to a huge number of offenses, it became confined to uh, murder, um, uh, and perhaps uh, uh, rape in some places, particularly in relation to uh, black people. 
But the thing is that for slaves, capital punishment retained its um, very broad application so that slaves could be uh, sentenced to death for who knows how many, uh, for scores and scores of different offenses. And so I think that that is what kept the capital punishment alive in this country. And in the aftermath, uh, the slave codes transformed into the black codes and so forth. But today I think we see the palpable uh, uh, memory of slavery in the death penalty. And Mumia Abu-Jamal, who is uh, you know, one of our most important public intellectuals. He's one of the most important public intellectuals of our time. And I, you know, I'm really, I get really upset because there are great movements to free Mumia in other parts of the world. Uh, you go to France and everybody knows his name. School children know his name. There are streets named after Mumia in Paris. In Germany, school children know his name. But why are we so reluctant to build that kind of movement here in this country that will free him? So thank you so much. Uh, uh, you know, we should all say free Mumia Abu-Jamal. Hello, Ms. Davis. I just want you to um, touch really quickly on the subject of eugenics and the long-term ramifications of eugenics. Um, the you know, ramifications of eugenics involved with the prison industrial complex. Well, yeah, that's a huge topic, and certainly, <laughs> you know, eugenics. I mean, but thank you for raising it because I think that uh, oftentimes we think of this as a historical uh, issue that has no bearing. On, on the present, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, certainly um, the um, sterilization, I mean, if you want to talk about the way in which eugenics directly affected practices uh, within the prison, sterilization was one of the most, uh, and continues to be in certain respects, one of the most important uh, uh, aspects. Uh, uh, and I would say that um, also the devaluation of the imprisoned body uh, so that it could be subjected to all kinds of experimentation, you know, so-called scientific experimentation. We're not aware of the extent to which the commodities that are marketed by, for example, the um, cosmetics industry, or the, I think they call it the cosmeceutical industry. You know, um, what is that called? Uh, it starts with an R. Skin, it's supposed to make your skin. Retinol, retinol, yeah. The, um, the, the, um, the, the scientists who, who develop retinol, uh, did all of his research on prisoners in a place called, in, in, in Philadelphia, in Holmesburg prisoners. And a whole generation of, um, uh, 
what are those, what are the scientists called who do research on, on um, skin? Yeah, the, 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 but, but specific, I mean, it's dermatologists who are um, connected to pharmaceuticals. Well, anyway, whatever. That, that whole field was created as a direct result of doing experiments on prisoners. And it's, it, 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 it expanded all over the country. So yeah, thank you very much for raising uh, the question of eugenics, but I forgot I was supposed to wait for two more questions. And we'll take three more and that'll... Um, I wanted to thank you so much for giving us this event. I can't speak for anyone else, but you're one of my personal heroes, so thank you so much. <laughs> um, I, was I know there are a lot of students here. I was hoping that you could share some insight on one of the most effective ways that students can dismantle the relationship between, well, the, the, the racist reality of institutions as they operate in this country and how students can effectively organize against that. I was hoping you could share. Okay. Okay, is there another? Yeah, um, so my question is, um, given the breakdown of the accountability of the state that a little sick, that neoliberalism has precipitated and the work the concept of citizenship performs to disenfranchise those without it. Is citizenship still a necessary construct or do we need a new way of understanding ourselves in relation to wait, this? Wait, state? I'm sorry, it's the, the acoustics are oh, okay. causing me to lose some of your words. It, so oh, okay. it, what were the first five words that you said? Given the breakdown of the accountability of the state that neoliberalism has precipitated, okay, and, and the work that the concept of citizenship performs to disenfranchise those without it, is this still a necessary construct, or do we need a new way of understanding okay. ourselves okay. in relation to this? Great, great. I got it. Thank you. <laughs> okay, one oh. more. Okay. Um. So my question is, is a little bit about Obama because we spoke so much tonight about Barack Obama and his candidacy and the separation of his individualism from his representation of the community. Um, and I guess that I had been thinking so much of Obama's candidacy and his potential presidency as a way to sort of alleviate a certain amount of disenfranchisement within the black community especially. And this idea that um, so much of that disenfranchisement is what leads to so much incarceration and imprisonment and, and the perpetuation of that. Um, and if maybe we could talk to some discussion. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe two more and then that'll be it, yeah. Okay, yeah. She has. Hundred were upstairs, unable to get in. So, but I understand you didn't speak about Troy Davis or other people less known than Mumia Abu Jamal or people less known than Troy Davis, uh, who is uh, having a stay of execution now. Uh, but uh, I'd like to ask your position and what we might do about those on death row who may be not innocent, 
because I think it's important to distinguish the political prisoners from the ordinary prisoners and, I mean, to break, it's important, can you hear me? It's important to break down the dis differences. Yeah, no, that's, I think I understand your question. Thank you very much, and I will definitely respond to it. Oh. Okay, right. let's end, we'll, we're gonna take one more question. Oh, okay, oh, hello, right here. Oh, cool. sorry. You know, the lights are um, yeah, so I was, I was watching Charlie Rose yesterday, and he was interviewing someone about uh, the financial crisis, right? And he, uh, and the, the guy, I don't remember his name, but the guy's response was to the effect of what? Um, that whoever we elect, the, the goal should be attaining equal opportunity for, for everyone, but not necessarily, not, not, he didn't say necessarily, but not equal results, right? So, and I think he was, you know, referring specifically to financial situations and, and things like that, but it, you know, obviously it has larger implications than that. So I was wondering what that argument, you know, equal opportunity versus equal results has in like the, the larger conversation about civil rights and citizenship. And okay. All right, so let's go back to um, the first question about um, ways of um, organizing, student organizing. Uh, how many of you are students here at this? Uh, okay. Good. Okay, how many of you, how many of you are involved in some form of activism? Okay, how many of you who are not involved would like to be? Okay, um, I don't think that there's um, a one-size-fit-all answer to that question. My suggestion would be to think creatively, uh, to come up with strategies that help to build community. We have uh, an enormous um, uh, challenge uh, facing us, and that is we do not necessarily know how to imagine ourselves as uh, 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 as members of communities that are larger than our than, than our immediate um, reach, uh, and and as I often say, what as I think back on the that era of the '60s, which is you know supposed to be like the radical era. Uh, I mean, that's what many of you think. Uh, um, <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of things that were very radical, but there were ser serious problems about that period as well. And I don't want you to uh, 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 ignore that. But what the, the, the most important aspect of that time, as I think back on you know, many decades, uh, was the ability we developed to imagine ourselves uh, uh, as uh, members of uh, far-flung communities uh, so that we could, in, in struggling against the war in Vietnam, it was not just objectifying people in Vietnam, as, but it was feeling a sense of solidarity and a sense of togetherness and an emotional connection uh, uh, with people, um, an ability to imagine their, imagine them as subjects and not objects of our, of our activism. And I think that is what we need more than anything. 
So I leave it up to you to figure out the, 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 the ways in which you can attempt to achieve that. But it's always important to find specific issues. It's hard to organize abstractly. You know, we can go out and say, yeah, let's build, let's build solidarities, let's build communities of resistance. You won't get very far, but... Uh, Anyway, the second question on citizenship, uh, and I think I, I kind of touched on, where are you? Um, you were right, okay. I think I kind of touched on what an answer to, what my answer to your question might look like when I you know, talk about um, uh, global solidarities. I think you're absolutely right that, uh, that we can't depend on uh, the nation as the boundary for our community. That's one of the problems. You know, the, the nationalism in this country, uh, e you know, even as, as, as horrendous as George Bush was with that kind of you know, nationalist unilateralism, uh, uh, we see it also in Obama. And we have to be critical of it. We really do, we have to push him. I mean, I like him because I see him as, 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 as a president who can be pushed and, and pressured and, and who, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he's always talking about grassroots movements, right? He's always talking about grassroots approaches and that's what that is about. He's always talking about, he's always talking about developing movements from below and not from above. Well, let's start doing that. And I, I, I do appreciate your question about uh, capital punishment, and you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, we can't uh, only focus on those whose names we know. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Troy Davis is the most recent case. Uh, uh, this country is the only country uh, of all of the so-called industrial democracies that systematically puts people to death as a routine sentence. No other country does that. And, you know, why can't we, why can't we call for abolition of the death penalty? I mean, I see, I see abolition of the death penalty is linked to abolition of the prison, which is fulfilling, so to speak, the unfulfilled process of abolishing slavery. So I see the three, these three abolitions are very much intertwined. But thank you so much for, for raising that question. And like, oh, you, you had one other issue about those who may not be innocent. Uh, you know, innocence is a construction, first of all. Uh, and and I, um, I think that, uh, you know, I'm not trying to dismiss horrible harm that people do. I'm not trying to dismiss the violence and the pain that gets, uh, that people inflict on on, on each other. But when you have a one-size-fits-all solution, you can never try to figure out what is going on. You can never try to solve the problem. I mean, this is one of the, 
the, the, the major uh, um, problems of the prison. You know, regardless of what you've done, if you commit a so-called crime, you go to prison. If you are a, um, if you have molested, sexually molested a child, you go to prison. And then once you go to prison, we can forget about the problem. And this is why so many people who are, uh, are, are hurt by this violence assume that once somebody is put to death or once somebody goes to prison, they're going to feel better. They expect, you know, there's this issue of closure. And most of the time, it never happens. The person feels exactly the same. And, and we have also, we've also um, allowed ourselves to forget about searching for a solution. And, you know, I think that um, I, Faye Honey Knopf, who uh, was the editor of a really wonderful book in 1976 called Instead of Prisons, uh, the um, Abolitionist Handbook, uh, Critical Resistance, uh, uh, recently published it. Some of, I don't know, were any of you at the incredible Critical Resistance Conference uh, uh, in Oakland that happened uh, almost exactly a month ago? There were some 3,000 people there. It was a really amazing experience. A Critical Resistance has released, re-released this uh, uh, book. Faye Honey Knopf, uh, who was a Quaker, an abolitionist, it was interesting, Quakers invented the penitentiary, and then they were the first to call for its abolition. Um, and she decided to work with... Um, um, sexual abusers, child sexual abusers at the, towards the end of her life because she felt that without addressing that issue, uh, the abolitionist struggle uh, would never move forward. And, you know, there are organizations, there's, a, there's, a, there's an amazing organization in the Bay Area, it's called Generation Five. And they're, they're approach is, first of all, to understand that generally when that kind of sexual abuse happens, the person who is the um, perpetrator has had it done to him or her. And we, kind of, we know this, right? I mean, we know that it's, it's, it's generational. But if you simply say, put people in prison, then what you're suggesting is that, okay, it will continue. The next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So they use other ways of trying to um, provide the kind of um, uh, support to people who are abusers and who, are, who have been abused. And their target is to end in that kind of sexual abuse by generation five, by the fifth generation. Now, that's something that's, the prison cannot do that. In a sense, the assumption is that all of these problems we face, all of this violence, all of this harm will continue to happen generation after generation after generation, and you just put the people in prison. And that way, when you put them in prison, you, you get rid of the person, but you also 
think that you've gotten rid of the problem that the person has, but you really haven't. You're allowing it to further reproduce. And this is one of the ways in which the prison helps to reproduce the very problems that it, it, it putatively solves. I mean, that's an argument for abolition. And so equal opportunity versus equal results, the final... Um, uh, question here. Well, you know, there's some, uh, there's a, a really strange kind of formalism there, like uh, because this is why um, we are told that colorblindness is uh, the order of the day, uh, because now uh, people or or gender blindness or, or whatever. Uh, that people who previously, who historically have been subjected to um, uh, modes of discrimination that have uh, prevented them from enjoying equal opportunity now because of the law. You see, this is something, this equal opportunity is a legal construct. Uh, it is only a legal construct. Because of the law uh, uh, that uh, everybody now has equal opportunity. Now. What they do with it, uh, or where they're coming from, doesn't matter. I mean, if you are if you are very wealthy, um, um, and you are say white, um, and you are what a man? I don't know. Uh, a biologically male. Oh, but that's also a construct, right? <laughs> so, but okay. But suppose you are a um, suppose you are a, a very ext an extremely poor Native American woman. Now, the law says that you're equal. The law says that you have equal opportunity. Um, and, but the law cannot apprehend those differences because, because the subject of the law is always an abstract individual. You know, the law cannot see race. Uh, and this is one of, the, uh, one of the major problems that has ar arisen from our struggles over time to evacuate the law of its references to race. Of course that was important. But now we have a single subject. You know, there is no racially differentiated subject. The law does not see con conditions that uh, lead to poverty for some people and affluence for others. Uh, so I, you know, I have... Um, I have problems with this equal opportunity uh, construct. Uh, uh, but, um, but you know, the other day, I, I think maybe I'll end with this. Uh, I was watching, what, what was it, CNN, one of those news stations. And I know sometimes we, you know, many people are getting addicted to, uh, I'm sure some of you are as well. But uh, it was a, um, it was some, journalists interviewing Biden about um, Marxism. <laughs> uh, 
because she wanted to get him to admit that Obama really was a socialist, that Obama agreed with Marx. Uh, uh, and she used the term um, from each according to his or her abilities and to each according to their needs. Uh, and, you know, Biden could have said, wow, Karl Marx said that? That sounds great. That's exactly what we need. Uh, but perhaps, uh, perhaps that uh, approach can come from below, from the masses, from, from you, and you know, from people all over this country and the world. Thank you very much.